Okay, so if you weren't here last week, we re-entered the book of Revelation. So we had covered the first 11 chapters earlier in the year, took a break in the summer. And uh, last week, as we jumped into chapter 12 of Revelation, we were given this bizarre vision of a pregnant woman who had a great red dragon camped out in front of her and who was waiting to devour the baby that was about to be birthed by her. Ultimately, the dragon was unsuccessful in subduing the baby, and so he chased the woman into a wilderness setting for a determined period of time. So let me just give a brief meaning as to what we talked about last week. The woman is a symbol of God's people. Out of God's people was birthed the Savior of the world, who is Jesus. The dragon is Satan, who is fixated on destroying Jesus. But Satan possesses limited power. So despite his best efforts, he is unable to defeat Jesus. Now, because he's unable to defeat Jesus, he is enraged by this reality. And so because of his rage, he pursues the woman. Now, unbeknownst to Satan, the dark place he's chasing the woman into was actually prepared by God to nourish her. So, so as she's fleeing, it's not as though it's, she's just out of control. It may feel out of control for her, for Jesus' church, as they're running into the wilderness, but God had prepared that place to nourish her. And, and in this, we see that God leads us into situations in life that expose our weakness and our need, and therefore to show us the sufficiency of Jesus. And so in all of this, then, he seeks to nourish us, not, not to punish us by leading us into the wilderness, but to nourish us. And so today, we continue this same vision with even greater detail. The, the verses we're looking at dealing with the same scenario, but it's coming at it from a little different perspective. So I'm going to read Revelation 12 for us here. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen, and then we are going to jump into this. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth." 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Man, you might hear that and think, man, this is crazy. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on with this? As I was just working through this this past week, I just was struck by there is so much good in these verses, and there is so much encouragement for us. So I hope that by the end of our time, you can agree with me that there's a lot of good and there's a lot of encouragement in these verses for us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this, t- this time that we have together. I praise you that you have given us your word. I think that in these words, you reveal your son, Jesus. And I pray that you would do that uh, over these next minutes together. I pray also, God, for our hearts, that our hearts would be soft and tender, that we would hear what you want to hear. And as we leave here today, I pray that our faith would be built and our hearts would be changed, that we'd be fixated on Jesus and he would be more precious and more treasured by us. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so... We begin in verse 7. It says, Now war arose in heaven. In our age of video games and fantasy movies, uh, I think we lose sight of this idea of just war and and what it really means. And, And what I mean by this then also is that as we play our video games, which can be filled with war, we watch maybe our Disney movies, uh, whether it's a superhero movie or it's like a princess movie, what we can tend to do, and and we do this in many facets of life, though, is that we, we mute the troubles of much of the rest of the world. We tend to minimize the horrors and the brutality of war. Now, maybe for some of us, the recent reminder of 9-11 causes some of us to feel this pit in our stomach, to feel the fear involved in a warlike reality. But we, we don't live in the midst of a war zone today. We, we might talk about how bad things seem to be getting in certain parts of our city or of our metro area, but we are not living in constant fear of a bomb being dropped on us. There aren't soldiers roaming our streets all around us. But what's occurring in this vision in Revelation is war. It is a fight to the death. Now, in this war, what we see is we see good versus evil. So we see Michael, who is an angel who's referenced in the New Testament book of Jude, as well as the Old Testament book of Daniel. So we've got Michael and his angels, and then we've got the dragon and his angels as well. Now, because of Satan's rebellion, remember the dragon is a symbol for Satan. Because of his rebellion against God, we read that there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So they've been kicked out. Now, what we've got to understand here is this war that we're talking about is not like Star Wars. All right, There's no sense or question in terms of who's going to win. I think we see this, too, in this mundane statement in verse 8. It just almost casually says, but he was defeated. But the dragon and his angels were defeated. Okay, so then what we see going on in these verses 
is we see a change of location. So the first six verses that we looked at last week in chapter 12 saw kind of this heavenly perspective. But now what we read here, it says that Satan was thrown down to the earth. So what we find is the battles being moved from heaven to earth. This battle has invaded our realm here and now. Furthermore, verse 12 says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. If we think about this woe, in many ways, I think we can say this affirms our lived experience in the world that we live in. This is a world that is filled with struggle. This is a world that's filled with carnage. Maybe we don't feel it as near to us, but if we look out across the landscape of the world, maybe if some of you have lived in other parts of this world, you've seen this, you've felt this in a more near way, there is tons of carnage throughout this world. And this is who Satan is. This is what Satan does. So let's observe what these verses say about him. Notice the connection in verse 9 to what we read at the very beginning of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, Genesis. It calls, here in Revelation 12, it calls Satan that ancient serpent. So this picture of Satan being a serpent is what we also read back at the beginning of Genesis as well. He is a serpent. That conniving whisper who convinced Adam and Eve to disregard God's word and to pursue a temporary pleasure, that is who we find here as well. Deceiving. He is, in every sense of the word, a deceiver. Verse 9 says he is the deceiver of the whole world. Satan is the king of half-truth. And we live under a deluge of half-truth today. Fake news is the name of the game. I heard a prominent TV host this week state, just flat out state, I lie. I lie. This is part of his deal. Even as he does the news, he'll say, I lie. So in this world in which we live, agendas abound. Kickbacks and under-the-table deals are everywhere. And why does this happen? It's because there's a deceiver at work. This is who Satan is. We also read about him in verse 10 that he is the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Okay, so every single person sins. All of us here. We're on an equal playing field here. We all sin. We all have skeletons in our closets. We are messy people. And so Satan knows how to play this game. He knows that we know that we are sinners. So Satan, what he will do is he will whisper demeaning and devaluing lies to shame us into and out of many things. He wants us to think that if everyone else knows our secrets, they'll walk out on us, that they'll shake their heads at us, that they'll insult us. So what we see in these verses is that Satan is a deceiver. Satan is an accuser, and this is what he does every day to you. And I know that this is what he does to you every day because of what it says in verse 17. It says there that Satan went off to make war on the rest of the woman's offspring. The woman's offspring is Jesus' church. 
We are in a war right now. Ephesians 6 helps to make this clear as well. We're told there to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We tend to think that our struggle is against the person who's driving slow in the left lane in front of us. Or our struggle is against our boss who we dislike. But the Bible tells us differently. There are spiritual forces at work in this world around us, seeking to deceive us, seeking to destroy us. Now, you might say, Kevin, isn't this talking about some future event? I mean, clearly, Satan hasn't been defeated when we look out at the world we live in. So this has to be talking about an epic event in the future. That's probably going to happen after we die. And I would respond to that by saying there are significant implications for how we read the book of Revelation, which is part of what we talked about last week. I, I talked about there being some unhelpful and and even misleading ways to read Revelation last week. If we don't see this, what's being described in Revelation 12 as our current reality today, what will occur in our own hearts is we will push off responsibility, our own responsibility to engage in specific ways. Also, we won't read this chapter or the book of Revelation as urgent, And it's an urgent word to all of us today. Maybe even more than that, what we'll do is we'll miss a focal point in these verses as well as in all of Revelation. We need to rightly locate the throwing down of Satan and then flesh out the implications that flow from this. So there's a repeated theme throughout the book of Revelation that pops up in verse 11. So let me read this verse. It says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So there's a phrase in here that comes up repeatedly in Revelation, but in other parts of the Bible as well. And that phrase is the blood of the Lamb. And and it's highlighting a theme that occurs throughout the Bible, which is this idea of Jesus being a slain lamb. Okay? Jesus is pictured, he's symbolized throughout Revelation and other parts of the Bible as a slain lamb. And this is a resounding echo intended to repeatedly draw us back to the cross to remind us of the significance of what Jesus accomplished for us as he died a sacrificial death for our sins. Jesus' death on the cross broke the power of sin for you today. Jesus' death on the cross broke the power of sin for you today. Romans 6 speaks explicitly about this. It says, for one who has died, and what's talking about here is has died with Jesus, has been set free from sin. And then further down, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what this is communicating for the reader is that the throwing down of Satan occurred at the cross. And once we understand this, this is an event that has already happened, 
There's massive implications then for us today. Verse 10 states, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Okay, so God's salvation has come to us today. God's power is available to us today. His kingdom is a present reality for us today, here and now. We're not waiting for them to appear. Now, they have not been ushered in fully. That, that will come when Jesus returns. But we need to understand what this does mean for us here and now today. Given that God's salvation, his power, his kingdom are present realities for us here and now, here's what we know, or a couple of things that we can know for us today. Notice verse 11 says, They, being followers of Jesus, have conquered. So this is a past tense reality. Now when we look out at the world, it it can become easy to believe that Satan is winning, right? That he hasn't been conquered. Now remember, his whole goal is, is to deceive us into believing this lie, to discredit God, to minimize Jesus' power, to chip away at God's goodness. But that's not true. Jesus has conquered. We've got to take the Bible at its word. Jesus has conquered. It's not he will. He has. And because of this, we also then can live as conquerors. So those things that incite fear into your hearts, those things that cause us to live with anxiety, Jesus' death speaks directly to these scenarios. We become scared because we are concerned something bad might happen to us or to someone that we really love. We're scared when we won't get something that we want. We're scared because we're we're scared of being punished in some way. We're scared God might not love us because we know deep in our hearts we love other things more than we love Jesus. And this haunts us. And so we are scared. We haven't done enough good in our life to persuade God to fight for us, to actually save us. But here's the key in all of this. Jesus' blood was shed for your sin before you did any good work. Before you could do any good work. Jesus gave his life for you. For your sin, knowing that you would run after many vile things throughout your life. Jesus has already fought for you. And Jesus has already won and conquered for you. Now, what we need to understand is how we conquer. We conquer by Jesus' blood. Not by shedding our own blood. Not by working really hard to not anger God. Not by any means of our own goodness. But we conquer by Jesus' blood. So Jesus intends for us to know, to believe. He he intends for us to Be convinced that today you can say no to sin. 
that sin does not have power over you. Through Jesus, through his shed blood for you, you can say no. And your no to sin isn't necessarily you conquering, you doing this great thing. It's you living in the conquering sacrifice of Jesus. There's a really subtle difference there. But it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. This is what we talk about all the time here at Center Church. And saying no to sin involves us doing something. But ultimately, our doing something is rooted in the fact of what Jesus has already done for us. His blood was shed for us. And that is the key in all of this. It's Jesus, not us. Okay, so, so we can say no to sin. We, sh- we should understand sin has no power over us beyond the power that we give to it if we're trusting in Jesus. But Jesus conquering has more implications for us here as well. Satan is spoken of here as being our accuser. So think about what accusations do you hear? What are those whispers that you hear throughout your day? Maybe the disappointment of a parent. Maybe the disappointment of a loved one or a boss, of a coach. Or the thought that maybe you're not loved. Maybe the thought that you're weird in some way. That your sin is too great. For Jesus' forgiveness. Or maybe there's a struggle in some part of life or in school for you where you hear accusations. Maybe you feel like you can't measure up to your spouse or that you don't fit a stereotype that you see in so many other people. As an accuser, Satan will endlessly hurl insults and shame at us. He wants to convince us That however you think you don't measure up proves then that you're not loved by God. That's what he wants to convince you of, to accuse you of. And we've already stated that Satan is the king of half-truths, which means he's going to include a portion of truth. He doesn't need a lot, just a little bit of truth to help then lead you down a road that will lead you away from Jesus that will fill you with accusations leading you to condemnation. But through the cross, Satan, the accuser, was thrown down. So Jesus' death and his resurrection then was a cosmic yell at Satan to go to hell. So what the shed blood of Jesus does for us is it displays Jesus' love for us. That is how much he loves us. This perfect God looks at us as hopeless sinners, pursues us, chases us down, loves us, goes to the cross for us. So the cross proclaims his love for us, but it also exposes Satan's accusatory lies as meaningless. Whatever that lie is or those lies are, those accusations are in your own life, Jesus going on the cross is intending to expose that Satan's lies, his accusations are futile. 
they mean nothing. So, maybe, maybe I talk a little slow. Maybe I stutter. But Jesus can still use my words to point others to Jesus. Maybe I'm never going to have bulging muscles. But I can still go to the grocery store and help little old ladies reach things off the top of the shelf. Right? Like, it, it doesn't matter. Like, whatever those accusations might be for us, God can take those things and he can use them in good ways in and through our lives. I spent two years raging at God for killing my dream in life, cursing at God, ignoring him, running from him into deeper sin. And what did he do? Did he give up on me? No, he did not. He pursued me. In the face of all of my own personal trash, my rebellion against him, he chased me down. He rescued me. He showed me and is showing me continually the beauty of his death on the cross, his shed blood for my sin. His shed blood covers all of my grievous sin, and that is true for you as well. So when Satan accuses me, I, I, I just say, talk to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. And, and that's what we all can do. When the accusations come, we remind ourselves of what Jesus says about us through his shed blood, through his death on the cross. Okay, so... Jesus conquering, Satan being thrown down, is not intended to just be an abstract concept for us. It's intended to have practical ramifications for us here and now in our everyday lives. Okay? Now, I want to spend a few moments here talking about the last five verses, verses 13 to 17, where we've got this woman going into the wilderness, and she's being saved. So let me give just a quick uh, summary here. The woman, remember, is representative of God's people, and she is fleeing into the wilderness. Satan pursues her into the wilderness. He spewed water from his mouth, seeking to drown the woman in a flood. The earth swallows up the water, allowing the woman to be spared. Because of this, Satan is furious, and he goes off to make war against the offspring of the woman, against Jesus' church. So I want to make just three brief observations here about things going on here. First of all, the throwing down of Satan signifies defeat, not death. And this can help us understand the world that we live in now, why it's as broken as it is. The fact that Satan is still functioning means that there is woe for us still here on earth. But the ultimate binding of Satan is coming. It will happen when Jesus returns. And we know this. We know Jesus will do this because we can look back and we can see how Jesus has been faithful to his word at other times throughout history. We can see the way in which he went to the cross and his blood was shed for us because he has proven himself faithful. 
Because he has shown his love is great, we can trust him to know that he will fulfill this ultimate reality, the, bi- the ultimate binding of Satan. So what's talking about here with the throwing down is defeat, not death. Secondly, Satan is at war with followers of Jesus. The comforts that we have been afforded in this country have dulled us to this reality that we're in a war. But Satan does have fury for anything pertaining to Jesus. There's battle lines that have been drawn for us. And what we've found through the book of Revelation is that there's no middle ground. Many months ago, we, taught, or we preached through chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And in those two chapters, there's seven letters to churches in the region of Asia Minor. Okay, and, and in the last letter, the letter, it's a letter to a city named Laodicea. And in that letter, it talks about water. And it talks about lukewarm, this fact like there's hot and there's cold. And this reality how at times we can try and live in a lukewarm way. The idea being we've got one foot in hot, one foot in cold. And what the letter to the Laodiceans proved to us is that there is no lukewarm. You're either hot or cold. If we try to be lukewarm, we're ultimately saying, proving we are cold towards Jesus. So when we think about our reality today, we're in a war. If we're not in the war, fighting for gospel advancement, we're likely loving our lives in a way that endangers ourselves. And so there's this call for us here to engage in the war, in the spiritual war that's transpiring around us and within us as well. And so this, this kind of ties into what we've talked about for a number of weeks with this idea of mission. J- Jesus doesn't save us so that we can just put our feet up and enjoy comforts and luxury in the Christian life. He wants to give us many good things for sure, but he saves us into his church and into the mission that he's already on here in this world. He wants to advance the gospel, to advance the good news of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. So we've got to understand, Satan is at war with followers of Jesus, and we should be engaged in this war. Third, what does the woman do to save herself in these verses? The answer to that question is nothing, okay? We read that she was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could escape from the dragon. And then also, it says that the earth came to the help of the woman so that she could be saved from the flood. What these symbols, these pictures are conveying to us is a pervasive biblical theme of saved by grace. God is doing everything to save the woman. And God does everything to save us as well. We need to be saved from our sin from Satan's attacks, from his repetitive accusations, from his deceit. What the Bible says over and over is that you will not save yourself. 
There's no amount of good that you can do to impress God, to earn or merit something from God. And the moment that God does everything to save us becomes ho-hum for us, we have lost sight of how amazing it is that God would save us. Grace is a revolutionary concept. The fact that a perfect God saves sinners is unreal. I mean, come on, we, we know ourselves, right? We're lazy. We're lazy people. We're selfish people. We chase after many things that are not Jesus. The fact that he is kind to us, that he pursues us, demonstrates his grace. Grace is the best news in the world. It's what makes Christianity Christianity. It's what makes it distinctive from every other religion. Every other religion says, do better, work harder, earn something from the deity. And Jesus says, I do it all for you. He understands who we are. We're poor, hopeless, powerless people. And he comes to us in love, not in shame, not mocking us. He comes to us in love. So grace is the word I want to preach till I die. Like if I could right now spiritually grab you by the shoulders and shake you, I would do that. Like to help you see the beauty of God's grace. We should never tire of this. It is the most beautiful reality this world has ever seen. The fact that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's a sermon you should preach to yourself day after day, moment after moment. Jesus is better. Okay, I've got one point of gospel application for us this morning. So we do gospel application here at Center Church because when you walk out of here, we want to be really intentional about one thing. Typically, when, when we get to an end of a sermon or a church might get to an end of a sermon, we have what's called application. And in that application, you might get two or three or four things that you can go home with and you can do those things. We believe that those things will take care of themselves. And our, by us emphasizing those things you need to do, we gloss over the most important thing, which is what Jesus has done for us. So what we do each week is we're calling you to believe the gospel. So we call it not application, we call it gospel application because we want to remind ourselves, we want to walk out of here thinking about this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus has done for us. That's primary. Not what we do, but what Jesus has done for us. So our one point of gospel application for us this morning is Jesus will overcome. He will. Whatever wilderness experience you find yourself in today, Jesus will save. We will conquer. How? This is so important. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. That's how we overcome. By trusting in Jesus' shed blood. 
nothing else. Jesus is the one that has thrown Satan down. And one day, he will come back and he will bind his sorry butt up forever. Until then, we're called to trust in Jesus. Through whatever wilderness experiences we find ourselves in, and trusting, believing that in those wilderness experiences, that Jesus will nourish us. He'll grow us. He'll build us. He'll accomplish his good work in us. He will nourish us. As a practical extension of this truth, I want to highlight how we overcome in Jesus while we live in this God-forsaken world. Verse 12. I want to read this again. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. When we read this verse, because we're here on earth, it almost sounds like we're boxed into a corner, right? Like here we are, just a life of woe. And there will be woe. That's part of what this is saying. But we talked last week about how Revelation is so focused on spiritual realities. So we can't just read this and think only physically. The Bible over and over emphasizes spiritual realities over physical realities. And so what we need to do is we need to be a people who live in this physical world with our hearts and our minds set on heavenly realities. This is what Colossians 3.2 says for us. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on, that are on earth. An- another way that we could say this is, Care about what Jesus cared about. Care about what Jesus cared about. Now, what did Jesus care about? One thing we know is that Jesus didn't go build some Christian commune and hide out from all of the the realities, the harsh realities of this world. That's not what he did. He loved, he served, he cared for non-Christians. And we should be similarly engaged in this world. Notice, Jesus didn't love, serve, and care for non-Christians for his own comfort. It was hard for him. He suffered a ton. He didn't do it so that he would be popular, so that he might build his 401k. He had a greater priority, building his father's kingdom, advancing the gospel. And that's what we're called to, whether we're comfortable or discomforted in life whether we're popular or unpopular, when money is ample or scarce, in sickness and in health, in good times and bad, our hope must be Jesus and his overcoming. Not our overcoming, his overcoming. And our aim is that others then would hope in the one who will ultimately overcome.